as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave her <coughs> to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly master with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you are serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Children are invited to the church. How are you doing? Good. Hey, Charlie. I'm so excited. It's not this side. It's not this side. You're talking about church. Oh, I'm not already going to hell. What was the promise? It feels a homily like that. It's a really like that.
rhythm and pitch and timbre and volume. These are the properties of music. And music has the ability to find us and move us and lift us up in ways that little meaning can. You see, you are an oratorical snob. Yes, I am. God loves me for it. You said this sent me an You can't just trot out seasons. Which he blew, by the way. It has nothing to do with husbands and wives. It's all of us. St. Paul begins the passage, be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. Be subject to one another. In this day and age of 24-hour cable crack devoted to feeding the voyeuristic gluttony of an American public hooked on a bad soap opera that's passing itself off as important, don't you think we might be able to find some relevance in verse 21? How do we end the cycle? Be subject to one another. So, this is about you. No, it's not about me. Well, yes, it is about me, but tomorrow it'll be about somebody else. We'll watch Larry King see who. All hacks off the stage right now. That's national security order. I'm going to the residence. I'm taking a bath. I'm turning on Sinatra. How does Mrs. Sinatra feel about that, Miss Bill? You make me egg food. <laughs> Well, I told myself if I ever had a chance to preach on this passage, I would make sure to play that video, uh, partially because it's funny, partially because I think it, it names a lot of the struggles we have when we come to this text and to this story. Now, Kelly, uh, I joked with Kelly, it was like, do we want to read scripture today? And she was like, not really. And I was like, well, read it first, because it says in there, wives submit to your husbands. And, and, uh, and then she laughed and decided to do it anyways. Um, which thank God. Um, but this is this Sunday is is one of the is is was a challenge for me. It was hard to come up with an organizing principle for this sermon because it it sort of sets us off. Now, <clears throat> from the beginning, wives submit to your husbands after be subject to one another. Which I love the way that this passage claims we can raise all sorts of issues. And not only that, there's this there's this notion at the end with slaves too. I mean, so it starts off with, is this still viable in the modern world? And ends with something where we say, I hope it's not viable in the modern world. Slaves, be subject to your master. Christians in the church did a lot to eradicate the world from slavery. And so, you know, that's part of the struggle with today's passage. And yet what we have today and what we have in our lives is holy scripture that we open up that's supposed to teach us and to bring us to life. And so how do we hear a passage like this in this way? And so I thought of all different ways it could go without being able to find an organizing principle. But I thought I'd start with some of the questions people might have. The first is, is this binding for us, right? We try to treat scripture as if it's a binding document. Is, is, is this, you know, ordering of the household, is this binding for us? The second is, if, if not, as a Christian, I want scripture to edify me. So what ways could it edify me if it's not binding? What does submit cover, which is another one. It's like, what is that? Because we'll get into this, but people fight about this, talk about hierarchy and sort of marriage all the time, um, or people who are really into it on one side. And then why slaves? Why slaves within this? Um, and so that's sort of all the challenges, and you could think of many more that we have today. But I wanted to start with, with these two words that many of you may not be familiar with. You will know what complementarianism is. David, what's complementarianism? Uh, men and women are equal, but they have different roles. Sometimes they're in the 
Yeah, you're sophisticatedly defining complementarianism, but yeah, is that they live, men and women exist in complementary parts. The equal part is, is not necessarily written in the rule, right? But they exist in, in complementary parts. It's not a straw man, I'm just saying that they, they, well, for Christian history, would you say it's always contained equal? No, it's going to be used. Oh, yeah. So, so complementarianism is this idea that they exist in complementary parts and have different roles, right? Equality is something you hope that's embedded in there, and in the modern world, often it is, um, but it's not necessarily a given. Egalitarianism, does anybody, this is one we actually, like, Microsoft Word does not know complementarianism. That's just something Christians debate about. Tells you a lot about Microsoft Word and Christians. Um, egalitarianism is a word we actually use in our society sometimes. Does, does anybody know what that means? David knows because he's debated this before, right? Uh, egalitarianism is that we live in sort of an equal sort of sphere, that, that men and women are equal and equal only. And, and not only that, when we talk about it in the modern world, society should be set up on egalitarian principles. Everybody should have equal right to all things that they desire to do, and that that should be sort of fruitful for us. And, and so American society, particularly in, in the West, Europe too, is set up sort of with this egalitarian ethos underneath it. Is everybody is equal in everything, and they should have access and ability to achieve the goods that they want without hindrance. And so when Christians debate this, it, it has to do with, okay, one side says, Bible is instructing us on how marriages and households should be ordered. I don't know what that, that side does with the slavery part, but they do interesting things. Um, but, uh, so we should hold that. The Bible should teach us what to do about this. The, the bad side of the other point is people who say, well, the modern world is egalitarian, that world is patriarchal, and so what we should do is be egalitarian in our marriages, except that this part of the Bible either doesn't have much to teach us, or is teaching us something else than what we think it is. And part of my problem with this is I think both sides of these debate are both boring and kind of wrong. Uh, we'll start with egalitarianism on its wrongness, is, is that it's just not true, right, that, that we have equal quality among us. We're not equally related at all. I mean, in one sense, and this is an abuse of egalitarianism, a high abuse, but me and LeBron James, having equal access to practice basketball from a young age till today are not equal in things. Never were. There was no chance that I would be, no matter how much I had committed myself, you guys are all looking at him and guys like, there's no way he'd even be like Spud Webb. Maybe the guy who cleans up the sweat when they fall on the ground, that would maybe be that guy. But they, he had no hope um, at any of that. Yeah, fair, fair. But the egalitarian ethos doesn't deal well with the fact of the world is that we have different skills and different management and different this. And so whether you want to, the, the question is, do we ground those in, in sort of creative differences between men and women forever? Well, certainly there's, there's one, notably, that we could, is that women can bear children and men can't. Now, see, God, when he created us, obviously was not an egalitarian. People should have equal access to bear and grow children. That's just not the case when God created us. And so already within a minor part of the, or a large part of the created order, there's a difference that makes us not equal. Now, the other great part about this is, is Susie Orman, have people ever watched her? I guarantee I've probably only seen like one minute of her, but the one minute I saw she was berating somebody because she said, 
that somebody said, well, me and my wife, we both manage our finances together. And if you know Susie, she's like, no, one of you is equipped to handle finances. One of you will check it. One of you will do a good job. The other is just causing problems. One of you should mind and manage it. One of you should check it. Both of you should be aware. Both of you should know. But what she was saying is that, like, really, it's nuts to have both of your hands in there all the time, trying to pay bills, trying to do this, trying to do that, because it doesn't work that way. It just creates conflict and chaos. Kelly is ordered in a way that she can do finances. So one of the problems with the complementarian side of it is what actually is the complementary elements. Well, men, women can give birth, men can go to war. Okay, well, we've got two. But after that, they would be like, so what happens is both sides of this debate, you'll find people who are complementarian who live egalitarian marriages in many ways. You'll find people who are egalitarian that live complementarian marriages because it's what works. And so part of it, when people ask me about this, it's like, God wants you to have a holy and loving marriage and household together. And I would hate to prescribe things that would make that difficult for you guys to achieve. So as I said, in marriage counseling, it's how do we work that out together? Now, N.T. Wright, who's a, who's a famous writer who would probably fall on the egalitarian side of the debate, always says, you know, I, I hate to give up the word complementary because it's such a good word. To survive and to live together in the modern world, we need to see each other as complementary parts that work together, that make things, that create, that order, that bring a household about. So these are, are sort of the things that sort of deal with this portion of this passage, is, is this is the overarching structure that Christians are having around this. Um, and it's not a healthy debate. I mean, having been in these debates and like I said, not actually being happy with either one of these terms. It's always kind of just sad. But here's part of the problem with complementarism on a different level. These are Roosevelt's blocks. Um, and this is going to be a pain already, I can tell. But what Paul is doing in, the, in this portion of Ephesians, which is called the household code, and they've called, been called the household codes for a long time, is he's looking at the structures of the ancient modern world. The ancient Greco-Roman, the most prominent structures of that world. And most prominent structures of that world have household codes similar to what Paul is writing in the book of Ephesians. There are some that come very close in, in the sort of pagan, unchristian world, and then there are some that are far away. So Aristotle, who's on the back of the bulletin, we'll get to him in a minute what he says in the back, but what you would find in the ancient modern world is Aristotle would say, the man is over the wife and should direct her and guide her almost like cattle. And then you would have Aristotle saying on slaves is that slaves and the, the master serve nothing in common. They shouldn't relate at all. But his household code would be ordered the same way. And so what happens is, is Paul is writing in a world where the structures of society are already there. So this is potential problem with complementarianism. So the structures that governed the first century Greco-Roman world would need to be ordained by God as the structures by which we are called to live by. Because the pagans are using the same model, right? Some of them, like I said, get are positive. They are ones that 
that are maybe a step below Paul. There are ones that are horrible. You wouldn't want to live with those household codes. But that they're the household codes that govern the ancient world. And so the question is, is, is this is, you know, husband, uh, husband to slave, wife and everything in the middle, is sort of the governing factor of how you're going to set this up, how you're going to write about this. Well, that's, that's just the way their world was, right? There's no reason necessarily why we should say, well, that's God-ordained, particularly because this is what all the pagans are practicing. So, but what Paul does is he says, this is the world as we have it, right? We have, we have essentially what's, what's men on top and husbands on top, and then we have slaves on the bottom, and that's the way the world does. And so what Paul does is, is then changes the bonds which connect them. He, he sort of adds in, okay, so if that's the world we have, let's say that love and reciprocity will govern these relationships. Let's say that if this is the world we have, that somebody should give up for the other. But let's look at kids for a moment. We've, we've mentioned this before, but in the word ancient world, there's no such thing as CPS, Child Protective Services, right? So if you had a kid in the ancient world, teenager, who was, who was really riled up, and that's closer to adulthood, let's say a 10-year-old who you had no worth for, you could, one, sell them into slavery, you could, two, murder them, three, and, and some of you are like 10-year-olds, I had a 10-year-old once, the, the, but all those things, you know, you couldn't, you could do in the ancient world, and nobody could do anything about it. Now, obviously, if you were murdering your kids on a regular basis, it would set you up in a place that nobody would want to do business with you. It's not like that was common in the ancient world. But as the head of the household, that was within your rights to sort of do. So what Paul says then is, okay, don't provoke to anger and also um, train them up in the way of the Lord. So he changes the bounds of these relationships. Ancient world is structured this way. But Paul says, okay, if, if this is the structure, how do we navigate it in a different way? How do we change the bonds that bring it together? And so that's what happens here. But this raises then the question of what do we do now, right? So we have a world that has its own structures that sort of set up and govern relationships and marriage. We have bosses over people. We have households that needs some governance, and we have, we have other ways of sort of thinking about this. What should we do? Well, the first thing I think we should do is look at changing the ways that those are networked together so that Christ can be for, fully formed among us. Right? It's, it's to say, like Paul did, is that this is the way the world is set up. But how do we change those things so that life can take place here more? So let's take work relationship. Most of us have been employed at some point. Instead of masters and slaves, let's say boss and an hourly worker. Part of what he would say then is, is have you guys ever driven by a construction site? This week, one of the guys who I read worked at a construction site, and he was like, you know, we would work really hard when the boss came around, and then when he wasn't around, not a lot of work got done. And then at the end of the day, they'd say, well, you can get overtime if we finish this, and we'd work really hard and finish it an hour. And then to keep it fair, we had to put down three hours of overtime. If it took an hour so they wouldn't know we could be equipped 
that fast to do the work, right? If you did all that an hour, um, this was in England. So be kind to American. I don't know what they do. This was in England, this guy. But so what would Paul say into this context with our wages, losses, and people who sort of stand over it? He'd probably say that like work unto Christ efficiently and as well as you can all the time. This is fair. Don't be concerned about who's watching. And so one of the things you'll notice about what Paul is doing in, in his ancient context is he's at first always addressing the first person almost as if they have a choice. Actually, they do have a choice. He's addressing them first as sort of, you know, be subject, place yourself under. This is the choice. This is the way. And so what he would say to them, and then he would say to the, to the master, the person who oversees the construction site, assuming they're both Christians, which the ancient Christian world was not that concerned about the non-Christians. Assuming they're both Christians, he would say, you know, treat them fairly. Don't try to use fear to get them to work more. Don't hold out their jobs over them. Don't, and, and it's like, if the job is worth more. Let's say you're not a state worker. Let's say you're working on a construction. If the job is worth more, so much that you would offer overtime to get it done fastly, why wouldn't you pay that wage to the get-go so that you could work together mutually to achieve this end? See, what would happen is, is that Paul would sort of try to reset these relationships in some way. Now, Kierkegaard, when he writes about these sort of um, nets or these uh, social relationships, as he says, what happens is we're all caught in a net. I was hoping Merle was coming today, because he would definitely have his fishing net in the back of his truck. Is that we're all caught in a net. And some people happen to be towards the bottom of the net. And some people happen to be the, towards the top of the net. But the first thing to get about Kierkegaard's analogy is we're all caught in a net. The orientation of social structures in the world is never going to be perfect. We're all caught in this thing. But he said, the duty for the Christian, the duty who's placed themselves in love, is to rise above it and to find relationship beyond that. To rise up and meet face to face and to have that. And Kierkegaard, when he writes this, he says, I know I'm going to be accused of asking too much and too little at the same time. Too much because I expect people of the higher place to meet with those of the lower place. I expect them to act as if their station in life above other people has no meaning. But also, too little. Because I'm not attacking the net and trying to restructure society in a different way. But he says, in love, this is perhaps the best we can achieve, is to meet each other. And so the early church, like this structure is kind of governing for the early church, but we already had, as President Bartlett that's who's in that clip. Because I watched that show too much, I have to call him President Bartlett. Um, it's respect. Um, respect the office. Um, the, uh, uh, he already points out is that Paul begins the passage by telling everybody to be subject to one another. To submit to one another. He sets that up first. That that is sort of the overarching goal is that under the Lordship of Christ, we would all place ourselves under the other. This should be shocking because Jesus uses these examples in the gospel. He washes the disciples' feet as the 
Lord of the universe and creator and sustainer of all things, he kneels down and washes his disciples' feet. So Paul's overarching goal for the whole community is that they would always be willing to, to sort of use under each other to provide a better spot in the world. And that, I think, is worth holding on to. Be subject to one another and use that to find a way of holiness. That, I think, is what the overarching passage is about. But what Paul does is then deals with the structures as we have them. And, and the question comes up is that why would Kierkegaard, or why wouldn't Paul, try to reorder society? The first reason, I think, is by doing this, is by changing the bonds, you're actually creating kind of a third thing, right? Slaves, this is a powerful one. Slaves, have the same, you have the same master as the slave. You see how that changes the relationship just right there. Masters, as you treat your slaves some way, also remember that you have the same master. So you're like a mini-master. Or maybe if you have a proper view of Christ, you're almost like a master, not all. Her guardian, her protector, guider. Now, to, to be fair, I forgot to reference, slavery in the ancient world is not like um, ancient civil or civil war slavery. Um, we picture that as slavery. Slaves in the ancient world could, could buy things, uh, make themselves free, earn things, were often captured, went into indentured slavery to get out of debt, um, those type of things, which some of us who are in debt are like, yeah, that feels like indentured slavery. Um, but regardless, uh, you know, it's not the same thing. So, uh, But there were bad situations, too, probably situations worse than what we saw around uh, the 1800s in this country. Um, so that's not to say they were all like, go out to the marketplace, make your own home. Um, there were varying levels of slavery. Uh, but um, that they have the same master now changes the relationship. It almost becomes like a third sort of thing. Or some people want to push it. They want to say that it actually nudges and impresses the world towards a different spot. Here's part of the problem, I think, with, with the modern notion to say that we should rebuild the world so that it's all equitable, is that it requires a great amount of power and a great amount of chances to make big mistakes. Uh, if I were to sit down with, with you, Don, and say, Don, you know, could you reorder all the structures that govern our society into a way that makes human flourishing more possible? It's a giant risk. You would have to know infinitely more than most people know to be able to do that. You'd have to be able to govern for the fact that people will take advantage of whatever system you put together. You'd have to be able to govern for the fact that, that whatever system you try to orchestrate would have uh, these downsides and these effects, and how would you restructure those things? So even more importantly than, than the fact of the matter is that it would be Incredibly difficult to say, let's us alone reorder the whole world, just as a board or a committee. That's the way the church would do it. Um, we'd have a committee that decided who was on the committee first, but then we'd have a committee that was in charge of reordering the world. Ray grew up Presbyterian, right? You think that's funny. Baptist committees, they do committees too. Um, that's sort of the way it is. But what I think is happening for the Christians is they're to await this commonwealth that God has called them into, this world that God has called them into, to expect 
within our lives and days to reorder society in a way that makes it all just fair and equitable is to expect the kingdom of heaven. And what we're called to do is to pray, to be a community of thanksgiving, to be people who await that day, and at times live as if that day is here, but not to make that world. Only God alone makes that world. So that's this portion of, of the sermon. Um, the, the one thing, the same thing is, is that husbands submit to your wives, if we go back to that, I think our problems with it have us miss the beauty of what, Christ, what Paul is saying Christ does for the church. He washes her, bathes her. He, he provides her with, with uh, cleansing, makes her holy. He presents her as a radiant thing without wrinkle or stain or with blemish, but holy and blameless. Forget about wives, submit to your husbands in a second, but what Paul is saying about what Christ's relationship to the church in is deeply meaningful and profound. So much so that he says these things are a mystery, and he doesn't use that phrase lightly. He actually, in the Greek, he would say these things are a mega mystery. These are a big mystery. Because what they proclaim is God's mission to sum all things up in himself at the end of age. So we lose focused on, on what Paul is actively saying. Now, one of the hard parts is to move, if you want to this week, this is not like sermon application, this is really a dumb exercise, but if you could do it, if you have time and you want to, I could not think of a way that this analogy would work in an egalitarian structure. I could not think of a way in which you could say Christ is the head, Christ cares for his body, Christ washes and cleanses and presents, Christ bounds up the church in this way, in a way that's egalitarian. So if you're if you're concerned about that, if you think I'm wrong, try and send it to me because there may be a way that it's possible. But for the most part, I think this is part of the thing is, is that we as Christians struggle with like Christ is Lord because the only time we ever say Lord is Christ is Lord. And in the ancient world, there were all sorts of Lords, but you to say Christ is Lord is to say that he is the greater Lord over all or that the other lords don't matter, or that it relativizes all these things. An Ephesus to say Jesus is God, as we talked about, is to, is to sort of minimize and distract from all the other gods there. And so to have these things is that those are still worth remaining. We all have the same master. We all are to obey our parents as Christ and, and to bring them up in the Lord. We all are to have this Jesus who comes to the church with the purpose of marrying her. The, the passage that Don read for us from Ezekiel is this washing one, is to wash and to present. And so that's the real heart of the passage. If these structures and if these codes were found everywhere throughout the ancient world, I think we're supposed to say, okay, that's interesting. And the question of how we order holy households is important. But did you see what Jesus did here? Did you see what God did here for his body on earth? Did you see how God is the one who's relativizing the structures of slavery too? Of making us all subject to this one master in our work lives. That's what I think is worth holding on to and looking at. And so Aristotle, we'll, we'll sort of end with the Aristotle quote on the back of the bulletin. 
Every household is part of a state, and these relationships are part of the household, and the excellence of the part must have regard to that of the whole. For the ancient world, Aristotle, and he's right about this, I think, is the household is the building blocks of the whole. And so it's right and wise to be concerned with the small, because they build up and make the whole healthy. You know, as we become more of an egalitarian society, you can see all the faults that have come with it. As we become more of a technocratic society, people, uh, Sherry Turkle has this great book called Alone Together. And if you think about phones and TVs and Netflix and screens, we have this amazing ability in the modern world of being alone together. To go out to dinner and watch people that are on their cell phones the whole time they're together. They have this ability to be alone together. Is, is to see that even in our world, the faults are still there, right? So we go in Paul's world, well, this is a, a patriarchal structure, and we know that these cause problems, right? But let us not make that blind to the problems of our structures. The, there are more kids in America, I think I saw this this week, born out of wedlock today than are born into a marriage. No, on a moralistic side, it's like, oh, that's, that's, that's bad. But on a psychological side, it's horrible. Kids need to be in households of two parents. Kids need a mother and father to love them. One of the things we know about most of the people who end up in prison, particularly males, is they didn't have a present father figure. So to say that over half of what's happening in the world is children born without both parents present, See, we can become blind to our own problems as we say, oh, well, Paul's got this thing, and so, so we're better than that. Maybe, but maybe we're not, too. And so the call for the church is to find these structures and to say that in the church is the household, the domestic life of whether I'm single or whether I'm married or whether I have kids or whether I'm a wage worker is to build it in such a way that it models God's kingdom here on earth. Because if Christ is the head of the church, and the church is his body, then the health of all these little cells called households that build it up is critical to the health of the body. This is why Paul delves into that here. So for us, in our households, in our, in our lives, it's important for us to find ways to become holy unto that ourselves. And I think there's a way to do that, which was in last week's reading. Sing songs to one another. Recite psalms together. Before you eat meals together or alone, break out a journal and, and keep thanksgiving within it. Take some time to sit face to face with one another. Take some time to know that as you govern other people, if that's your lot in life, that you all have the same master. It's to us to build a healthy body our homes, so that we together can be built up into the body of Christ, who pursues us, who washes us, and presents us as holy and blameless, without wrinkle or spot, a holiness we don't earn, but that is a gift from God. Let us pray.